I feel like we should start by telling the listeners uh, what has happened. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah. Because uh, this episode is going to change in the middle, and it may sound a little different, um, because when you record it different times, it sounds a little different, and I'm not sure how our conversation is going to line up. But And um, also, I developed a cold yes. <laughs> halfway through this episode because it didn't it cut the recording cut off. Yes. And so here we are, uh, several weeks later. We don't need to talk about how many weeks it's been. Um. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of weeks. <laughs> yes. So uh, the, we recorded the first part of this episode um, when we recorded the first episode. Um, but the uh, recording failed partway through, so uh, we lost the last part. So we're going to re-record that right now, and uh, yeah, that's 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 what's happening. And whatever brilliant discussion we had at the end of last episode is just lost to history. I don't remember what it was, but I felt like it was good. The Holy Spirit will guide us. It'll be <laughs> fine. <laughs> yep. And I honestly can't remember what we talked about, so who knows? Who knows? Yep. Oh. Okay, so uh, let's uh, jump into it. Hello and welcome to Sacramentum, a podcast by and for the Parish Church of St. Jerome. If you're not a member of our parish and are joining us today, we're glad you're here. We are an inclusive Catholic community that offers all the church's sacraments to all of God's people. I'm Sam Beck, and I'm joined by our pastor, Father Joshua Shawnee, and our director of Christian education, Josh Beck. Today, we'll be continuing our discussion of the sacraments in this series, Intro to St. Jerome's. Last week, we discussed the sacraments of initiation. And today we'll be starting off with the sacraments of healing. So let's let's start with penance and reconciliation. This is one that I don't know as much about. Talk to us about what happens with that. Yeah, so I love these sacraments of healing because I think um, it really helps us to understand how and where and why healing is needed and on what levels. Um, and so as... As Catholics, we talk about healing as being needed in body and mind and spirit and community. And these sacraments um, affect grace in all of those areas. Um, So penance and reconciliation um, is commonly called uh, confession. And so if you've heard about confession, about confessing your sins to a priest, that's the sacrament that we're talking about. And Christ himself in the Gospels gives uh, his followers, his disciples, the ability to forgive sins. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit and says, um, whichever sins you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whichever sins you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, James also talks about how um, the prayer of faith uh, can can heal the sick, um, but it can also uh, uh, cause an efficacious forgiveness of sins. Um, And so through uh, the sacrament of confession or sacrament of penance or reconciliation, the Catholic comes to the church seeking the forgiveness of sins, um, which I think one of the most powerful things is, is, is that it's an acknowledgement that my sin doesn't just impact me, um, that there's a communal ecclesial nature um, to the way that sin in, impacts and infects our life. And so we confess those things in Mass uh, before we get started right after the introduction. But the sacrament of confession is coming to a priest and confessing those sins and seeking the absolution of a priest and getting that absolution. I think that is another essential part of it that uh, helps bring about healing. Because I think that it is a necessary thing for humans to do, to acknowledge the harm that they do to others. And at the same time, I think it's necessary for them to hear forgiveness, to be absolved of that once they have repented of it. Um, I think too often in, I guess, modern America, we, in order to solve the problems of like shame and guilt and that kind of thing, religious trauma, those kinds of things, we tend to just try to write off the idea of sin in general and just say, oh, don't worry about it. Um, But I think a better solution is to acknowledge the sin, but also lean into the grace that we're given 
um, and make sure that we um, uh, take advantage of that. Um, yeah. I think that both aspects of the penance and reconciliation, um, it's not just that it's about going and wallowing in all of your sins. That's not what confession is about. Um, it's about bringing about reconciliation through the confession of sins. Yeah, and one of the things I hear frequently um, when talking with uh, Catholics and Protestants uh, alike is why can't I just confess my sins to God? I mean, of course you can, and, and all of us, I hope, do confess our sins to God, but there's a special sacramental grace in going to confession and telling your sins out loud to somebody and hearing the words, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A couple things can happen in there. One of the things is, um, I've heard people tell me, I've carried this around with me for 30 years. This has been a burden on my soul for three decades, a woman recently told me. And I never told anybody this thing out loud. Um, and just saying it out loud and hearing a representative of Christ in his church say, you are forgiven of that sin. That is a powerful, life-changing experience that no you know, personal confession driving down the road is going to accomplish. So there's a very special grace in that. Also, as a representative of the church, uh, that the priest is standing in persona Christi um, in that sacramental rite, um, is welcoming, welcoming them into the full embrace of the church. It's an acknowledgement that our sin separates us not only from God, but from one another. Mm-hmm. And so that's another powerful thing that happens in that sacrament. Another kind of funny thing happens is people will tell me things that that are on their conscience uh, that I get to say, I'm sorry, that's a struggle for you. I'm not sure that that's actually a sin. Mm -hmm. Um, And talking about why that isn't a sin or perhaps ways to go about that. People will carry, you know, uh, something on their conscience for a long time. And, you know, I had a, a woman confess that she was mad at her husband before he died. And, felt that that was a sin burden on her life. And it, it was through the grace of the sacrament of, of confession that she got to realize that being angry is not a sin if you don't act on it, if it's not nursed, if it's not brought to fruition in her life. And that there were even things in that, in that experience that anybody would be angry with. And so giving her the permission to say being angry at that moment was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that to not be angry at that moment uh, would have been a bigger issue. Um, another powerful thing that happens uh, in confession, confession feels good um, to sit and talk about, you know, your deepest, darkest secrets, the problems, your hangups. Um, but it's not therapy. Um, and sometimes people come in with some serious psychological issues um, that they think are related to sin um, and perhaps are not. Um, so, uh, for instance, I had a person that wrestled with um, negative, intrusive thoughts, and I had to say, you know, I think this is not a sin problem. I think you're wrestling with a psychological issue. Um, I really think you should see a therapist or a psychiatrist to talk about this. Um, These are things that, you know, perhaps do not originate in a sinful state and maybe actual psychological issues. Um, It's okay to have Jesus and a therapist, too. Um, and so being able to talk and to kind of refer people as well. And none of that happens outside of the confines of confession. Um, and so it really is a powerful, powerful means of grace, of clarification. Um, and everyone always thinks I'm setting, memorizing their sins or that their confession is so unique. But I've only been a priest for like three years and they all run together. They have all blended together. Everyone is confessing the same things, and they all think they're the only ones doing those things. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting kind of experience on the other side of the mm-hmm. confessional screen to see that kind of play out and to be able to say, you know, a lot of people wrestle with that issue. Or you even hear your priest say, you know what, I really wrestle with that issue as well. Here's some things that work well for me. Um, and then the very last thing I say in confession is go in peace and pray for me, a sinner. Um, because the reason I'm good at giving confessions is because I'm so good at sinning. <laughs> so I'm, I'm the expert in the room on that. And so being able to talk about that with this, with your spiritual leader, I think, um, can be a means of grace as well. There's a lot to that. There's a, 
I don't think we give confession enough credit because <laughs> there's there was a lot in that that you were just talking about that um, is something that I think everybody needs. Uh, we kind of we need that peace, that I don't know consolation. I do think that there are a lot of people walking around with um, things on their mind that they really need to get out or uh, false guilt, all kinds of things like that. Uh, confession is a great way to to just practically <laughs> deal with that, let alone all of the spiritual benefits that come with it. Yeah. And it is, I feel like, the most underutilized sacrament. Um, it's alarming to me how little I hear confessions. Um, so, yeah. Because I need to go to confession almost weekly. And I'm a priest who's trying his dead level best <laughs> to be a good Catholic. And so, yeah, I just, I wonder, you know, I wonder about why this sacrament is so underutilized. And I think a lot of Catholics don't have a really good understanding of that sacrament, or they've had a negative experience where they walked in um, to the confessional, the priest was not responsive, said, say five Hail Marys, here's your absolution next. Um, and so I think that can be an issue as well. Um, and also popular media and culture gives us a really, you can't walk into confession with the intent of going out and doing the same sin again um, and get absolution. It doesn't work like it does on TV. Um, the person has to be truly penitent in order you know, to receive that. Um, and it's oftentimes I don't give penance. It's like say three Hail Marys and call me in the morning. Like um, my, if you yelled at your children and my, form of penance will likely be go apologize to your children you know if i if i stole something the penance may be return that find a way to return that um and so uh, i think those three things that's really misrepresented in the media catholics uh don't have an understanding or they've had a really negative experience of confession i think that keeps people away but i think you hit the nail on the head even in the progressive and inclusive church, uh, I think many of our members have grown up hearing about their sin in such a way that any talk of sin frightens them or triggers them. Um, but I think we have to, as Catholics and as Christians, acknowledge that we carry with us, you know, that sinful nature, that inherited sinful nature, um, and that even us, even the Pope has a confessor. Um, that we all need to come, you know, to the altar of mercy for that, and that the church gives us that sacrament for that reason. And so I love that each of the sacraments have their own kind of um, matter. There's water and oil and laying on of hands. And um, everyone always asks me, well, what about the sacrament of confession? And it's that conversation that occurs. And think about how powerful that is that the church is acknowledging that two people sitting down and talking about tough things is a means of grace. That sitting down with a member of the clergy, a representative of Christ in his church, and just saying things out loud has power in your life. I think that that can be a very beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The uh, communal nature of confession is very compelling to me. And this came up last time we were talking about, uh, I don't remember which one, but one of the previous sacraments about how, how much the community is emphasized within Catholicism. I appreciate that a lot. It's very different from the, like, it's just me and Jesus yeah. attitude, my personal yeah. walk with Jesus, right. um, attitude that I have seen and experienced in other contexts. Um, but I feel it. I think that we all feel it like deep in our bones, like our community is sick. Mm. Like it's not just, it's not just a me thing. It's yeah. not just a yeah. you thing. Like our community needs healing and restoration. So I appreciate that that is emphasized so much. Yeah. And that communal healing affects your personal sin state and your personal sin state affects the way that you think about life. And the way you think about life affects your will and your emotions. All of these things are so fundamentally tied together. And confession gets at their, that kind of mess of knots and begins to pull them apart one 
at a time. Yeah. And I think you're right. We so forget um, the communal nature of that, of the way that it affects us on every level of our life. Body, mind, spirit, community is, in, is infected um, with that sin state. Yeah. So just opening up, you know, that can of worms is an avenue for grace that is desperately needed. Just turn on the news. I always tell people, turn on the news or open Facebook or look in the mirror and you'll see original sin in your life um, and in the lives of those around you. And that's why the church gave us confession. That idea that you were just talking about of uh, just me and Jesus, that was one objection that I had always heard to Catholicism is that it's you can't just talk to God and get forgiveness for your sins. You have to go through a priest. Yeah, I heard this too. Um, and being Catholic now and thinking about that and just throughout this conversation, I was just thinking about how that just has it completely backwards. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> in my mind now, throughout this conversation, I'm just thinking, I get to go through a priest um, to receive the forgiveness of sins. Um, I get to hear that absolution from a person who's standing in, in Persona Christi, um, who is standing as the person who is saying the words of Christ um, to uh, affirm that about me, that I'm forgiven. And I need that. Um, that's something that I, I, I need to hear that in my life. That's not something that in my own, you know, prayer life by myself, talking to God, I'm going to be able to bring about i get to go to go through a priest it's a it's a great thing and people who do that on a regular basis will tell you this is important to me um i have regular confessors that will say um, i need to schedule confession i need this like it's really time for me to come in i'm wrestling with this or i'm falling back i've fallen back into that old habit or this old pattern of thought and behavior i need you get to where when you receive that grace that's in confession. You understand what an impact that can have in your life and with your walk with Christ. Um, Because it is Christ who issues uh, the forgiveness. It's just coming through the church, um, through the the clergy person that's sitting in front of you. But it is something entirely different to to look someone in the face and to hear those words spoken. Um, The forgiveness, yes, it 100% comes from Christ, but it's powerful to experience that through and within the church. Because we're humans, we need it embodied (laughs) if we're going to be able to experience it. Yeah, and it's not to the exclusion of like speaking directly to God or having some sort of like personal devotional time or whatever, which I, I had heard a similar objection to Catholicism when I was really young and hadn't even thought about it in, I don't know, a decade or something. And then we started coming here. I became Catholic and I heard it again. And I was like, what? Like, how? How? (laughs) Where does that that even come from? (laughs) That, like, I've I've never felt not allowed to do anything (laughs) at church here. Most people who (laughs) confess to a priest regularly will tell you it's through that act of confession that I started confessing my sins to Christ on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm really being routine and going to confession, um, I catch my own sins real quick. I say, oh, Jesus, forgive me for that. Forgive me for that uncharitable thought. Forgive me for that unkind word. Um, so in a way, that act of confessing to an individual actually inspires and informs your relationship with Christ in a way that leads you to more often seek forgiveness of Christ. Right. Which will hopefully in the end help you to become a better person and become like Christ. Yeah. Become like Christ, um, which is another part of the, I guess, effect behind penance and reconciliation. If you go to confession on a regular basis, you will become a better person. Because I tried. To not become a better person, and was just you couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. <laughs> Can't resist that grace. Um, oh boy, that's a different. That's a different topic. We should probably move on. We yeah, talked about that one so. for a long time. Sorry. I know. I, I didn't. About confession. I didn't expect I'm to talk about. I'm passionate about confession. Yeah, it is something that's important to me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is such a an important part of my sacramental life. So mm-hmm. that I really. I always want to talk about the sacraments, though. So yeah, yeah. Just nothing. Tell me, move new. on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to anointing the sick. Um, 
I don't know what happens with. Well, actually, no. I take it back because we do anointing the sick during like the evening mass yeah. and things like that. Is it different in the hospital when you visit somebody? Not really. Not okay. on a fundamental level. Um, this is one of those sacraments that we do a lot more than other churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that comes from my own spiritual tradition. And um, I tend to be um, kind of focused on the gifts of the spirit um, in my personal life. Um, but we started doing anointing of the sick like once a month. Uh, on our Wednesday evening mass and people were so consistently recommending or asking for that, mm-hmm. that w- we started doing it every Wednesday. And so I'll anoint five or six or sometimes 10 people mm-hmm. um, on a Wednesday night. And most priests go their entire life without anointing 10 people. Really? Um, and we'll do that here in a week. Um, and we now do it on Sunday mornings as well. Uh, we had two people come forward to mass today to receive anointing of the sick. But the anointing of the sick um, is using oil, again, the symbol of healing and uh, sealing and preserving and the work of the Holy Spirit to anoint a person expressly for healing of body, mind, spirit, and community. Mm -hmm. Um, So someone's dealing with a psychological issue that they're really struggling with, depression or anxiety, they may come forward to receive a special prayer and blessing um, physically. Someone suffering with pain or a prolonged illness um, someone struggling with a relationship, um, dealing with a, a loss of a relationship or grief will come forward and receive anointing, the laying on of hands by a priest and anointing with oil in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to bring about Christ's healing ministry to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally and the church Catholic believes that Christ still heals. Um, those miracles didn't stop. Um, and so we really firmly believe in anointing of the sick in this parish and it's actually become a real kind of interesting, important part of our of our mass. We now have anointing of the spirit, uh, our anointing for sick and and for the sick, um, at almost every single mass. Mm-hmm. So, which is unusual. That's that's something I think unique uh, to Saint Jerome's. And I will tell you, and this makes you know some of my progressive clergy people roll their eyes, but we've seen people healed um, of of bodily physical ailments. Um, here in this parish, we've seen people delivered from struggles in their life, um, delivered from very difficult circumstances in ways that have no other explanation other than the fact that we believe in anointing here. And so it's a really important part of who we are as a parish. Mm-hmm. It's kind of odd. We do a lot of anointing of the sick. Yeah, we do a lot. I found that fascinating going yeah. to the Wednesday night mass because um, almost everybody at the Wednesday night mass goes forward for the to be honest with you, most of the people are at the Wednesday night mass to receive anointing. Hmm. Our attendance doubled on Wednesday night when we started doing it every wow. Wednesday night. I was uh, confused the first time that we were at Wednesday night mass and everybody got, I was like, am I miss what's they were going up what's happening? But yeah. It was, yeah <laughs> the, it's true. Line. <laughs> yeah. Everybody got up and lined up except me because <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because it's unusual. That's not. Yeah. I don't think I've ever been in any religious community, Catholic, Protestant, uh, Anglican, that that was a almost daily, every every time we gather for Mass, part of the parish. But it is, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of what we were talking about with confession, that it, when something like that is offered, it's so easy to say, well, I'm fine. Like, I don't need, I don't need this. This doesn't apply to me. I'm okay. But maybe if we, like, take the time to evaluate, well, this is a situation that, you know, could use some healing, maybe. Yeah. Um, a lot of us have those in some area or another. Okay, so this is, this is the uh, part where the sound changes and I develop a cold that we talked about earlier. Um, and... We just finished discussing um, part of anointing the sick, you know, what that looks like at St. Jerome's and how it's different. We do this more often, that sort of thing. Um, But let's talk about what is the process for anointing the sick? Like what is, like practically, what do we do? Yeah, so typically when we do anointing of the sick here at St. Jerome's, that occurs within the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Um, anointing of the sick is not limited to the holy sacrifice of the mass. 
Um, I do anointing of the sick when I do hospital visits. I do anointing of the sick sometimes uh, in the process of providing pastoral care uh, within the parish or outside of it. But for us, typically, um, anointing of the sick falls within the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So on a Wednesday night, we have anointing of the sick, and it comes right after communion. Um, I read a passage from the book of James and invite those who want anointing of uh, anointing for healing in body, mind, spirit, or community to come forward, and they receive the laying on of hands. I anoint them um, with the oil, uh, the blessed sanctified oil, specifically for anointing the sick. I draw a cross on their forehead with that oil, and I say, I anoint you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, for complete healing of body, mind, and spirit, and for the peace that passes all understanding. Um, like you mentioned previously, anointing is something that is wildly popular here at the pop, at the parish church of St. Jerome. So uh, we've actually added it on Sunday morning as well as Deacon Gary is setting the table for Holy Communion. There's an opportunity for people to come forward and receive birthday blessings or special prayers. Um, I bless sacramentals at that time, uh, but usually people come forward specifically for um, anointing. So, And I think I've asked you this before. It's olive oil, right? That is used so yes, in the, yeah, typically in it's, it's olive oil. Yeah. yeah. There was a moment where I, I had a brief panic wearing it was a, a coconut oil. Yeah, that I was because of to, the cotton it was, ball. Because it looked solid. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. And so it, all, it's all clear. It's all oil. <laughs> you could have a, an allergic reaction in the shape of a cross on your forehead. Right. You have a cross-shaped rash on my forehead. I think that indicates you have a demon. I, so, I feel like it does, too. I don't so know. So we have to move past anointing <laughs> to exorcism. So, But it didn't happen. So uh, yeah. you're, you're clear. Coach was clear. <laughs> you're clear. Oh, man. So uh, is, that the, uh, is that a set prayer for anointing the sick or is that just your prayer that you use no and in fact um oftentimes i will improvise a prayer if it's for one person you know kind of try and speak particularly to their um to their particular need if it's healing a body or healing of spirit or healing in a relationship i'll pray specifically for that um the important words are i anoint you in the name of the father son and the holy spirit um again that trinitarian formula Mm -hmm. um that is ever present in the church um, there are rites and prayers specifically for that, but most priests don't walk around carrying those rites and prayers books with them. Um, and so I, I kind of tend to uh, speak off the cuff and pray off the cuff. Um, when we have them in rapid succession, like we do on Wednesday nights after Mass, um, I use that that formula. Okay. Um, similar to with the previous uh, sacraments, I think it would be good to discuss like what is the grace that is conferred so, I mean, I think part of that is probably pretty straightforward. We're anointing um, as a means of, you know, asking for healing or trying achieving healing. Um, what else, if anything, do we associate as a grace with? Yeah, so it's our belief that all of the sacraments were um, instituted, initiated by Christ. Um, and so this sacrament is just a continuation of Christ's healing ministry, um, as it's found within the church, particularly with those um, in holy orders who have been called to anoint um, and provide that healing ministry. And so really it's just a continuation of that grace that comes from Christ and his healing ministry while he was here on earth. Um, that healing ministry, that grace is left with the church and then continues to animate and heal and make whole uh, his church and all the people in it uh, for all time. And so it's a continuation of that grace, that healing ministry um, stemming from Christ himself and his healing ministry on earth, which, of course, in Scripture, as it occurs in the life of the believer now, occurs on all of those different levels. Um, occurs emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and physically and socially and communally. Um, that grace, that healing grace and presence of Christ is, is made present, um, is brought forward into that sacrament. I guess another aspect of the uh, the grace um, that is important when it comes to the theology of healing and of anointing of the sick and that kind of thing is that it's not just for healing, but also it's about um, bringing the person into the, uh, I don't know, unification with Jesus in his own suffering. Um, and so it's a reminder of our, um, of Christ's suffering and his presence um, and our suffering with us. The 
one of the things I think that we talked about towards the beginning uh, in the first episode um, was that the sacraments are all efficacious, which is a big question when it comes to praying for healing. Like, is <laughs> if you're praying for healing and then the person's not healed, is, does, does that, that mean? mean? Yeah, does that mean the anointing of the sick is not an efficacious sacrament? But I think that uh, healing can happen in a lot of ways, which I think you have already talked about. Um, but also, part of what is efficacious in this is that it is the uniting of the person with Christ in his own suffering. Um, and uh, I think that's, I mean, all of the sacraments do that in one way or another, bring us into the life of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is a really important one of those sacraments, um, a really important aspect of the life of Christ um, that uh, we are brought into through this this ritual. I also think it's so rooted in human experience. Like, we all need healing, you know, at some point, physically, mentally, you know, spiritually, socially. Like you said, the healing we come forward for may not be the healing we receive. Um, And I think that that's one of those things. We may come forward wanting healing from a particular bodily ailment only to receive a spiritual healing which we needed more. Um, Right. Which can and does occur through our uniting of our sufferings with Christ. Right. Um, And in that sacrament, that suffering is actually redeemed um, and made an agent of grace itself. Um, So it's an acknowledgement that while God doesn't cause bad things uh, to happen to us, God is um, the source of all goodness and wholeness and rightness. Um, God can use even those those needs of healing, even those broken uh, places in our lives can can become the very mechanism of grace to which God moves most fully um, in us. You know, I think Paul says, you know, it's in our imperfections that you know Christ's perfections most shine forth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in our we- it's in our weaknesses that Christ is strongest. Um, and I think too, uh, that healing sacrament brings that to the fore. Yeah, that th- what you were just saying. That concept also reminds me of the the idea of um, that Christ works all things for the good of those who love Him. Like, not that like you said, not that God causes these things that are that are bad that cause suffering, but somehow uses them, works them uh, for our good. Yeah, I think that's a central kind of core mystery of the Christian life. Um, you know, like some other religions, our goal has never been to flee from all suffering. Um, that's why the crucifix is so central for us. Um, I think part of the strength of the Christian and Catholic tradition is we find meaning in that suffering. Um, and we find our healing through that suffering, not in spite of it. Um, and I think that that's something that that sacrament brings forth for us in a big way. Um, I think it's been why it's been so well received in this parish. Um, a lot of people come to this parish having been wounded by previous religious traditions. Um, we have, we're an older congregation. A lot of them are dealing with some physical ailments on a day-to-day basis. And so um, it's a real need within our parish on multiple levels. And so it's been very well received. And once we started doing it regularly, it just became a thing that people expected. I think that that even applies all the way to the suffering of death. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, I mean, Christ doesn't save us from death. He saves us through death. Mm -hmm. Um, It's through death that we come to resurrection through him. Um, and uh, I think all suffering is that way. Um, I think there are times when he's going to relieve it from us, but there are times when um, God is going to take us through that and uh, bring us to resurrection on the other side of it. Um, which I think is part of the, uh, I don't know, I like the prayer that you pray when you're uh, anointing the sick in the holistic nature of it. Because uh, it's not just the body it's not just the mind it's not even just the individual (laughs) it's the entire community that you're praying for healing for um and so i think that all of those things kind of lead toward that idea of um holistic resurrection and even holistic justice Mm. um that the christian life is moving toward Mm. um and that uh, the resurrection itself is pulling us toward yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but you know, the sacrament really is an acknowledgement of the whole human person and the whole human community. Um, yeah, and that's so missing in our world of specializations and segmentations and yeah, 
treating the, the whole human, yeah, all, mm-hmm. treating the whole human person and the whole human community, uh, lifting that up in prayer is, is a pretty powerful, powerful experience that I think speaks to the worth and dignity and complexity of the human person and human community um, that is being anointed, blessed, set apart, sealed um, in that in that moment. Absolutely, it really I appreciate that also that you that we mentioned community in that and it reminds me um of it just seems so true it seems so evident in our current culture that the the community itself is broken in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and I think that I think that most people know that and feel that kind of in our in our guts (laughs) um and so it, it reminds me of when um I think it's in Isaiah that the prophet says, um, you know, Lord, forgive me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. Like Mm -hmm. that, Mm -hmm. that person is kind of taking on the, um, weight of the brokenness of their community. Mm. Um, and I think that we all kind of feel that and that it's the whole community that needs to be healed. Yeah. And so in a way, you know, the church is a microcosm, not only of the kingdom of God, but a microcosm of the world as a whole, you know, where our culture is, um, what our needs as a people are, the state of our nation, you know. We bring all of those things with us to Mass. We bring all of, all of not only ourselves, but this entire human community with us uh, to this sacrament. And so we are really hoping that we take that healing. It's not just for us, you know. We, we take that and carry that out in the world, and we're called by that sacrament to be agents of healing wherever we find ourselves, in our schools and in our workplaces and in our homes and in our communities. Um, no matter how broken or how whole, um, most places, most people, most uh, communities can use some healing. And so we take that oil out with us. You know, We don't just wear it out on our heads symbolically. Uh, that healing ministry that is made evident and brought forth uh, in that uh, sacrament is then carried out by the person who received it uh, into the world where that hopefully that healing continues. This discussion about suffering reminded me of um, Frankel's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. That you, I think you got for me or yeah. told me to read. Yeah, I don't I'm know. a huge Frankel fan. It, oh, man. Yeah. It was really good. We should uh, have a whole series, I think, on that <laughs> later. If anybody else is like really into us talking about suffering for, yeah. <laughs> for a, a couple of episodes. <laughs> You guys know I'm into that. I know you are. I would, I would love to talk about suffering. All for, Catholics are into suffering. Yeah. It's a problem. It would, uh, it would be uh, very on brand. For death, suffering. Let's talk about it, it for a hundred episodes. You look episodes. giddy, Josh, <laughs> about this idea. Lent is my favorite season. We know. Yes. I mean, we're, got, we're at some point we have to have a conversation about the Odyssey. So yeah. naturally it's going to fall. Yeah, it's we're going to have fall to. In. Yep. <laughs> Well, until until that time, maybe we should move on to the sacraments of service. We have marriage as the the next sacrament on our list here. You know, we're going through the format of talking about the process, the like physical mm-hmm. nature of what happens with the the sacrament, and then the grace that is associated with it. Um, marriage is very out there. Everybody's been to a wedding, I feel yeah. like. Yeah, everybody um, knows. Right. Do we have, is there anything we want to point is. out about the, the ceremony or the, the sacrament? Yeah, so one of the interesting things about marriage is that the celebrant is actually not the minister. The celebrant of the sacrament of marriage are the two people who are devoting their lives to one another. Um, of course, and for us, that sacramental, it reflects... Um, Jesus's first miracle was at a wedding, so clearly he was a big fan. Um, and the church speaks very clearly that it's sacramental of Christ's love uh, for his church and that self-sacrificial um, love that exists between those two things as evident within the Christian couple um, and their desire to, to live sacrificially in love uh, with one another. And so what the church is actually doing is providing a witness for that. Um, giving uh, testimony, um, sacramentalizing that love that exists between uh, those two individuals. Um, and for us, you know, like all sacraments, it's, it's an indelible mark on the soul. Um, so we take that sacrament very seriously. It's not just a matter of going to the courthouse and signing a document. 
Um, for us, we believe that it changes that person and the couple uh, eternally and imbues that relationship uh, with that sacramental grace um, that has the power and authority to, to change their lives, the lives of their family, the lives of the community, the lives of the parish. Um, it's an important sacrament. If the celebrants are the two people getting married, um, could a person, like, this is, this is like just a theoretical question, but like if a priest was not available, could people be married, like go through the ceremony without a priest? So, yeah. So I can actually, let's say, you know, there was some weird, um, emergency. There's no priest around, um, I can actually give testimony or give witness or sacramentalize a marriage technically after the fact. And so we see that sometimes um, couples will come into the church, we're not married in a religious ceremony, and they'll want to sacramentalize that. Um, There's already a sacramental nature to all marriages, um, but we can bless that union and and kind of celebrate and give witness to that. That happens quite a bit. Uh, People will say, oh, we were young kids, we got married at the courthouse, you know, we're Catholics now, we'd really like you know, to kind of sacramentalize or, or to really celebrate that uh, relationship in the church. And I can bless that marriage and, mm-hmm. and give witness to that even after the fact. Okay. So that, yeah, it's entirely possible. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but go to your priest first. <laughs> when, <laughs> if when possible. possible. <laughs> yeah. I have heard of scenarios it? where bad, bad snowstorm, um, you know, wanting to, you know, to go ahead and, and move forward with that and having mm-hmm. that done by, you know, a justice of the peace, and then, you know, when the priest gets there two days later, uh, yeah. blesses the union, and then the couple gets to move on with their happy their happy life. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's in several movies, too. So That's pretty cute. Yeah. It sounds like a Christmas movie to me. Right, right. So it, uh, the ceremony itself is witnessing to the uh, relationship between Christ and the church and Christ's sacrificial love, um, but also the marriage itself like that relationship as the couple is living that out the rest of their lives is also meant to be a reflection of that Mm. um and the i think one of the graces um that comes through that is the grace of the presence of christ in the marriage the the ability to sacrificially love your spouse comes through um the christ in you his presence in your life and in your marriage in order to bring that about. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think that idea of the sacrificial love is incredibly important because it's it talks about in Ephesians, the whole, you know, household codes and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it talks about um, the love that spouses have for one another. And it, uh, the way that it talks about it is love your spouse, the way that Christ loves the church. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how does the spouse, the, how does Christ love the church? It's by sacrificing themselves for it it's Mm. through that um uh self-emptying um to the death kind of love um and i think that that's meant to be lived out in every single person and every single marriage the sacraments for us are part of a lifestyle so they're in in one way there's something that happens once within time like you're only baptized once and you live into that baptism though throughout your christian life the sacrament of marriage is the same way. You know, your marriage is solemnized one time. Um, But that's really a choice that you make every single day to live in that sacrificial love, to recommit um, to that sacramental marriage bond. Um, And that choice looks very different on, you know, day one of your marriage than it does five years, 10 years. Um, My spouse and I are approaching 14, 15 years. Um, And so that sacrifice, that commitment looks very different uh, now uh, than it did, you know, in the first few years of our marriage. And and so I think part of the grace is the commitment, um, the ability to continually make those sacrifices, to continually choose that sacrificial love um, day after day after day and year after year and argument after argument. Um, I think that's another part of that grace is being empowered by the Holy Spirit to make that choice anew every day. And when we fall short of that, um, to kind of step back up and, and, you know, reclaim that sacramental grace, reclaim that sacrificial love, choose to live into that, uh, that relationship that reflects Christ and his church uh, more truly and more fully. Um, okay. 
I think this is the part where we talk about how it's different at St. Jerome's. Yeah. You guys can't see me, but I'm, like, gesturing, like, well, it's obvious. (laughs) Yeah, so one of the things that is interesting about the parish church of St. Jerome uh, that's different from other Catholic communities uh, is we celebrate um, marriages for all people. Um, So, you know, we do straight marriages and gay marriages and marriages that involve trans individuals. And um, for us, that's a natural continuation of our charism of all sacraments for all people, we uh, believe that Christ's sacrificial, sacramental love uh, can be experienced by couples that, you know, aren't male and female, um, as bo- born as such. That uh, that sacramental self-sacrificing um, love can be uh, found and experienced and uh, lived forth in a variety uh, of couples. And so, yeah, we celebrate uh, that sacrament for everyone. There's nothing inherent about the sacrament of marriage as we believe it, um, especially in the all the things that we've been talking about, the fact that it's a witness to the um, love of Christ and all of that stuff, that um, there's no reason for that to not be able to apply to a, um, a same-gendered couple. Yeah, I think that's why being grounded in two things. Number one, that it is the couple that is the primary celebrant um, of that of that sacrament. Um, and also focusing on the grace of that sacrament, um, being a sacramentalization of, of Christ's love for his church. Um, well, how can that be gender specific? Right. Um, so yeah, I think uh, that has actually been something that has informed and inspired uh, inclusive churches in in embracing marriage equality and celebrating that sacrament of marriage for the great variety of couples um, that find their way into the Catholic tradition um, precisely because of that. There's nothing about um, that sacramental self-sacrificing love that is particularly gendered. Um, And so because of that, we, we really do open it up to everyone, including divorced Catholics who, you know, had a sacramental marriage before and, um, you know, or not, you know, did not get a, uh, a dispensation from that. Um, even those couples can come into the church and, and be remarried. Any other thoughts on that? I don't have anything else. <laughs> Anybody else? You sound like you have other thoughts. No, okay. I don't. Marriage That's is good. very straightforward. Everybody yeah. knows what Everybody it is. Everybody knows what that is. It's great. We just do, we do marriages. We like it. <laughs> <laughs> come get married. Fall Marry, in love. Get married. Is good. Yep. Um, and then... Our last sacrament is holy orders. So should we talk about the process, what that looks like, how we do that? Yeah, so uh, following in that Catholic tradition, we have uh, holy orders. And and that's the sacrament of being ordained and set apart for a ministry within the church Catholic. And uh, we have three different levels of orders, I guess you could say, bishop, priest, and deacon. Um, and they have, you know, different roles, different responsibilities uh, within them. And so ordination occurs through the laying on of hands by a bishop for a priest and a deacon. Um, or for those set, set apart for the episcopacy, those called to be bishop, um, the laying on of hands by three bishops. So uh, three bishops take, you know, take part in uh, the laying on of hands and elevating someone to the episcopacy. And so... Um, It's a setting apart for ministry. It's a sacramentalization of their call uh, to serve Christ in his Catholic Church. Um, And it's a means by which we receive apostolic succession um, through our bishops, uh, going all the way back to Christ and his apostles. Okay. Why is apostolic succession important? You are encroaching upon our next episode, (laughs) Josh. Am I? I think so. I can, I'll be brief, and then we'll expand it. For, um, I always joke and say apostolic succession is like the longest-running game of tag you're it in history. Yeah. Um, but the truth of the matter is is that Jesus, we know from Scripture, breathed um, on his apostles, laid hands on them. Um, and through that, that laying on of hands, um, certain graces were received for ministry to continue in that apostolic ministry. And so the church uh, took that and as a model for how we pass our apostolic um, gifts and graces on through the ages. And so uh, within an apostolic tradition, within an apostolic succession, 
um, our priests and deacons and bishops can trace the laying on of hands, um, believe it or not, all the way back um, to uh, the earliest apostles, the early church. And so for it's a continuation of uh, that grace, uh, that call, uh, that anointing that sets that person apart indelibly, permanently uh, for the, the ministry to which they're called. As someone who is part of that, does that have any like personal significance for you? Is that something you've thought of for yourself when you were about to be ordained, that kind of thing? Yes, I think, you know, of course, as you're preparing for ordination, there's so much going on. Um, and that apostolic tradition for me almost felt like a weight. Um, and that's something that is intis- in- intensified uh, through my ministry um, because it's perhaps best stated as not a weight, it's a responsibility um, to carry that apostolic tradition. Um, unlike some other traditions, you're not ordained and then sent out and you're on your own and you kind of do your own thing. And um, when you're ordained within the Catholic tradition, you're entrusted with that deposit of the faith. Um, and so that apostolic tradition, that apostolic authority is rooted in the apostolic faith. And so there's a firm, for me, very sincere felt commitment uh, to living and teaching and preaching and celebrating the sacraments in a way that I feel lies up, lines up most fully uh, with that apostolic tradition. And so um, I say when the bishop lays hands on you, you feel him for the rest of your life. And part of that is, I think, the weight of that apostolic tradition that we strive to, to carry with truth and fidelity to the best of our ability. So when I'm thinking back over sermons that I've preached or classes that I've taught, um, that apostolic tr- tradition uh, is what I compare it all to. Um, and my ministry, its validity, its, um, its efficacy is rooted in um, that apostolic tradition, that apostolic succession, uh, which I hope to carry with at least some distinction, you know, from my, from my entire life. So, yeah, it's kind of heavy. And this one, too, is an indelible mark. Right. Um, once you are, are ordained, you're always ordained. Once a priest, always a priest. Once a deacon, always a deacon. Uh, and this is something that is different uh, in Catholic and non-Catholic traditions. Um, ordination gives you the ability to celebrate the sacraments. It's then possible. Um, but we actually have another level called faculties, which is when a bishop gives you permission to celebrate the sacraments or to preach or to teach or to provide pastoral care. Um, so that's another connection to that apostolic succession, to that apostolic tradition. Um, I can't be ordained as a priest and then go off and do my own thing. Uh, I'm forever connected to a bishop that is giving me the faculties to carry on that apostolic ministry um, wherever I find myself, in a hospital or in a parish or in a university setting. Um, so ordination gives me the ability to serve as a priest, but I actually need something else called faculties that's granted to me by a bishop in apostolic succession that gives me the permission to live into that apostolic ministry. And so that's equally as important as the act of being ordained is, is keeping and getting, getting and keeping those faculties. So somebody could become a priest and always be a priest, but not be able to function as a priest. That's exactly right. If for some reason they lost their faculties. Yeah. Um, so if they're defrocked, you know, for a variety of reasons, lack of fidelity to defrocked is just uh, you're not able to celebrate the sacraments, preach, teach, or provide pastoral care. Okay. Um, so you are a priest. It's an indelible <laughs> mark. I know. It's these church the words. podcast. You have to let me get right. the question out. You can't just, you can't just answer my confused face. So I know it's striking. That was a forceful one. Defrocked. 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 Like a frock, like a yeah, kind of, Yeah. Okay. And I think okay, it probably, you. you know, is a visual of having that mantle of apostolic succession um, investments uh, removed from you. Yeah. And so if a clergy person is defrocked, um, imagining them being, they're chasuble, uh, being taken away, or if they're a bishop, they're mitre, you know, 
um, or the deacon there, Dalmatic. So it's a symbol of that that priestly or diaconal uh, authority being removed from them. It doesn't change that inward mark of the soul, but their authority and ability and permission to celebrate the sacraments, preach the word, um, is, is no longer valid, is no longer in force. Would there be other situations where a person would no longer um, have faculties to, to function in that capacity, like for a non-disgraceful reason? Like if, if somebody was, I don't know, very elderly and in retirement, and then they just didn't, would, would they potentially like not keep up their faculties? Yeah, um, and, and there are process, and this varies from bishop to bishop and communion to communion. Um, there are ways as, peop- as priests approach or deacons approach retirement age um, that their faculties can be, you know, they're still a priest, they're still able to function as needed, but they don't have an active ministry. There are ways around that. You can also surrender your faculties. Um, as a clergy person, you can write to your bishop and say, I'm surrendering my faculties. I acknowledge that uh, ordination uh, placed an indelible mark on my soul, but I no longer wish to uh, function in this capacity in the church. And so some people do surrender their faculties. So, um, yeah. So, but And priests retire, and, you know, deacons retire. They, can, they still have the ability to say the Mass. A bishop may say to them, you know, if you want to say the Mass in the nursing home, uh, that's fine, and so they can. You can receive limited faculties. Okay, but I get the sense it's not something that people will get faculties and then not have them for a while, and then get faculties again. Like it doesn't seem like it's like a back and forth type of thing. Yeah, and you can part. sometimes faculties will be removed for disciplinary reasons, um, and then say you've worked through whatever issue you, you had with your bishop, the bishop may then reinstate your faculties. So that yeah. is something that can be done. Um, it happens sometimes someone will surrender their faculties if they're having a crisis of faith mm-hmm. um, and need to work through some theological and spiritual issues and may come back at a later time and say, you know, I really, um, I really, I feel like I can exercise this ministry again in authenticity. I'd like to, I'd like to reapply for faculties and the bishop after a time of talking and working with them may uh, reissue those faculties. So it does sometimes go back and forth. Most of the time, People get their faculties, they maintain relationship with the bishop, um, and they sail through life and until they receive limited faculties upon retirement. It's kind of like a professional license. Yeah. Most of the time you, you wanna, keep it you forever, don't you don't want to lose if it. There's not a good reason. It's a big hassle <laughs> yeah. if you do. Yeah. But it can come back. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Um, and then as far as how this is different at St. Jerome's, um, this is me doing the obvious gesture again. All sacraments for all people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, we, we ordain women, women uh, to priests of the diaconate. And um, we've had female priests here in this parish before. Um, we do not believe that your gender, you know, means that you can or can't stand in persona Christi. Um, and so we ordain women to all three orders of ministry. Um, we ordain trans individuals uh, to all three orders of ministry. We celebrate the ministry of LGBTQI uh, plus individuals. Um, in fact, I think... I believe all of our ministers in St. Jerome's history, to point, um, this of course will change, um, but all of our ministries to point have been people who identified as being on the queer spectrum. Um, and so, yeah, so all sacraments for all people. Mm-hmm. I'm going to mess up that streak. <laughs> That's right. We got one We got one straight guy in formation, Josh Beck. Um, who, Man, he's ruining everything. That's right. We're getting straighter all the time. <laughs> Oh, and another way that it's different um, within our, our tradition is that the priests can be married, are encouraged to be oh, married. Oh, that's true, yeah. Yeah. Um, so actually, the Roman Catholic Church is the odd church out on that. Um, and the Anglican tradition, Anglican priests can be married. Uh, Orthodox priests can be married. Independent Catholic priests can be married. Old Catholic priests uh, can be married. So I think, yeah, we are in that apostolic tradition, which is, we feel like is the norm. We we. Uh, not only allow but encourage um, our clergy to be married. Um, that that's very grounding. Yeah, that celibacy thing didn't come around until fairly late, and it was not initially in my reading of history was not spiritually motivated. <laughs> yeah, um, it had a lot to do with land uh, reasons or land something owning. like that. Yeah. Land owning, the passing of property, uh, these 
uh, you know, these Episcopal dynasties that were emerging and, you know, offices in the church being passed down to children. Um, and so we do believe that many people are called to celibacy, um, but that it's a very particular, unique calling. Um, and so uh, as a result, we encourage our priests to, to be married. Um, in fact, I think you have to uh, get permission from your bishop to, to exercise, you know, a celibate vocation. So, so the grace in this uh, sacrament is the grace to perform the work um, of the order, correct? Yeah, to carry out that, that apostolic ministry that has its roots in the very ministry of Christ. Um, and the diaconate, that looks very different than it does in the priesthood, which looks very different than it does uh, in the episcopacy. Uh, the priest and impersonal Christi in the parish, they stand in the very presence of Christ. Um, within the community, they offer the sacrifice of the Mass, they hear confessions, uh, they offer blessings. Um, but in a way, they're really just a stand-in for a bishop um, who has the fullness of orders within them. That is uh, the teaching office of the church. They are the heir of the apostles. Uh, the unity of the church is found uh, in the bishops. And the deacons, of course, while the priest stands in persona Christi in the church, um, the deacon represents the church out in the world. Um, and so they're uh, devoted to lives of service, um, proclaiming the gospel, both inside and outside of the church, taking care of the poor and the needy, um, keeping the doors open, acting uh, as administrators. And so uh, that apostolic ministry takes shape for us in three very distinct and different ways. And while there is some overlap, um, each of those ministries is distinct as a separate and equal, as we say, order of ministry. Well, I said that that last one was our last uh, sacrament, but I did um, have one more for us to discuss, which is the sacrament of queso. Oh yes, the queso of our Lord. That's exactly. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. That ancient apostolic tradition of queso being at the Last Supper. It's I very think, important. Yeah, it's not in all of the. It's not in all of the texts, but if you look, if you look, it's yes. there. <laughs> it's an implied sacrament. Yeah. Right? Uh huh. If you look yeah. at the the pictures. Yeah. They were painted. Yes. For our listeners, uh, we call it the Ace Sacrament because after Mass every Sunday, uh, Sam wants to go to, to get Mexican food and, and have queso. I associate queso so much with church that like halfway through the the service, I told you the other day when it yes. is the line. It's true. It happens That's right. every time. That's right. Halfway through the Mass, <laughs> there's this one line, one one prayer that josh says and then my mouth starts watering i'm like it's right. queso time. you know it's queso it's coming <laughs> it's coming it's queso time you're like bread <laughs> wine okay now it's time for queso yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. got it so would that be a sacrament of initiation healing or service healing definitely healing, yes i feel like healing, so it's healing. body okay. mind and soul it restores me <laughs> after <laughs> i've said mass yeah yeah i feel like 100 percent that's healing queso okay. heals you it does and body mind spirit and community yeah because we all go together we all go together we're gathering around that case so yeah. it's sacramental definitely it's important and i think that you know we joke about queso being the eighth sacrament um and we may have covered this in the the previous conversation um but just because there are seven ways in which that grace is always sacramentally present that doesn't mean that that is the only place grace can be sacramentally present and so i think we all have an eighth sacrament you know, for some people, it's reading scripture. And um, when the church affirms seven sacraments, what it's really affirming is not that grace, sacramental grace can only occur there, but that it always occurs there. Um, you can't have mass without grace. You can't have baptism without grace. Um, mm-hmm. But I think we all have those moments in our lives which are agents, conveyors, mechanisms, streams of grace um, that flow through to and, you know, within and among us, um, and for Sam, that's just queso. That's right. She, she feels like queso. Grace of hot cheese. That's right. It's very important. So important. <laughs> you know, the Polish National Catholic Church has an ace sacrament. What is it? Scripture reading, Bible reading. Oh, oh. okay. They believe that is sacramental. Makes sense. Yeah. I'm down with sense. that. I kind of like that. I'm down with that. If I had to pick kind an of eight Protestant of me to yeah. like that. But. That is pretty Protestant of us. Yeah. <laughs> I dig it. I yeah. dig it. Yeah. Josh, what would be your ace sacrament? Um, 
I would, I mean, I like the, the non-joke answer would be a, a Bible reading mm-hmm. because I, I do kind of lean toward that. Um, or just, uh, I don't know, theological reading. Maybe. I was going to say reading. Yours yeah. would be reading. Reading, uh, reading in general. I think just even reading. the, yeah, even the Thomas jokes. Aquinas, yeah. the Bible, just yeah. getting in there. Lewis, I mean, just yeah. The joke reading. answer is reading Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Fantasy novels. Um, what about you? Hmm, non-joke answer would probably be... That's a good question. I would probably say uh, Marian devotions. I would elevate to the level of sacramental. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think. Um, joke answer would probably be Marian devotions. <laughs> <laughs> if you, Half uh, your wardrobe yeah, revolves around that's it. True. So. <laughs> also, if you look around this office that we're setting in for our viewers, there are probably, I'm going to say, 10 to 15 images of our blessed mother here in this office. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. You and your idol worship. Like a creepy amount. It actually is a little, now that you mentioned it. It's a bit much, isn't it? Some of them are like stacked on top of each other. Yeah. Like there's not even room for all of these pictures of Mary. I even have a a, a tattoo of our blessed mother. Right. On my arm. So yeah. Yeah. So I think Mary and devotions with me would be a, an A. And then Margarita's next to Saint's Queso would Perfect. be Done. the joke answer. Yeah. So which of your Mary shirts is your favorite? Uh, the Marian Rock Band I was going to say, it's got to be the band. Yeah, it's a really cool shirt. It has Mary's different apparitions of Mary on the front playing different instruments. And then on the back, it has the dates of all of the major Marian apparitions. And the locations, right? Like the right, way and the locations, yeah. It looks like a tour. Look. Yeah, a tour date list. Yeah. So it, it's a pretty... Pretty cool. It's a good one. It's a pretty cool <laughs> shirt. I wear that one out. <laughs> I wear it out. It's good. Yeah. Um, I think that brings us to an end. Yeah. Yep. For the sacraments. Sacraments are awesome. Yeah. They change you. You can find the notes for this episode at stjerometulsa.org. And if you're new here, it's also a great place to find out more about our parish. That's stjerometulsa.org. Thank you for listening to Sacramentum, and we'll talk to you next episode.